uh, you, you want to start talking about that thing with your father. Did you ever know what the story was that, you know, I, I gave him a check. We met this secret meeting at the airport. It wasn't a secret No, meeting. I didn't know. When we were renegotiating, but I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go. So I gave him the money. Later, when I found out all this had happened, and I saw him during the lawsuit, and he said to me, uh, did you ever suspect that? No, he was, the only time, the first inkling of, of, of this that we had was when we were playing, like, our asses off every night, you know, and we were playing, I don't know, for $5,000 a night or 3500 I don't remember what our price was then, it was, but it wasn't exorbitant, so we were really a working band, and all of a sudden they came to repossess Pig's Organ. And now we know we were working enough to be able to make payments on things. So that was our first inkling of something that was going wrong when they were starting to repossess our equipment. After And we were playing four or five nights a week. And then uh, Phil and I asked him, for, uh, we said, we want the books. You know, we want to see the books. What's happening? And then we met him in a, in a hamburger joint and he wouldn't give us the books. And then I realized something was really wrong. I said, wow. And I, I mean, I couldn't come to grips with this. I mean, this was... Amazing. Not only was he stealing from the Grateful Dead, which was like hitting Santa Claus over the head with a club, he was stealing from his own son. I had no idea that this was going on. Now, Lenny just turned out to be a liar and a thief. What There's nothing more in that. had you had with him? Was it a good father and son relationship? He left when I was an infant. Oh. So I never really knew him as a, growing up. And, when did he come back? And then I came back. We met again. When he he was a world champion rudimental drummer, and I had seen his picture in a brochure, a catalog for Remo, who makes all the drum heads. So I looked him up when I was in the Air Force in 1959, 1960, when I first joined the Air Force, and uh, we said hello, made friends, hung out for a week or two, and um, when I got out of the service, he had a drum store in San Carlos. So he asked me to come out here and join him in the drum store. That's how I met the Grateful Dead. You see, he was on the peninsula in San Carlos where the Grateful Dead were. And then eventually, Kreutzmann uh, uh, became my drum student. And then he asked me to come and, and, and play with this, new, with this band that he had, you know, that he was in. And I sat in one day, and that was the Grateful Dead. And that was that. So Lenny, really, looking back, not only was he disgraced and almost ruined the Grateful Dead and myself personally in our relationship, he actually made it so that the Grateful Dead was the Grateful Dead. You know, if you look at it in a bigger way, Lenny was responsible in a certain kind of a bizarre, off-the-wall way of getting us all together. together. Yeah, because I would never have been out here and we wouldn't have had the Grateful Dead as we know it without him. Even though he he had got me so... It was the first time I'd ever wanted to... I thought about suicide, man. I never thought of taking my life before. I'm a real positive, ongoing guy, you know, whatever. I take, the, take it as it comes, you know. But what a disgrace... You know, but the Grateful Dead never blamed me. You know, the guys stuck by me just like brothers, man. I mean, right to the very end, you know. And that was one of the reasons that I had to leave the band for two years. You couldn't deal with it, huh? I, I went into this big, giant funk. I was so embarrassed and so humiliated that my father would steal from the Grateful Dead under my nose. And under and the Grateful Dead treated him so fine, man. And they were getting him off, you know. I mean, they treated him to something. We had something. We had magic. We had mayonnaise. And he didn't understand what he saw. And he, didn't, he thought we were just a bunch of hippies taking LSD. And that's all he saw. And I guess he tried to take advantage of that in the worst way. And I, I couldn't face anybody. Not that they were playing it on me. I laid it on myself. You know, I mean, I just... So I just took a few years off, and then I just came back one day. 
Well, did you ever quantify how much money went? It was over seventy five thousand. So, so seventy five thousand was a one shot there. I think that was just the. Uh, it was between seventy five and two hundred, I guess. We never found out. No, if you, you know, I mean, that was that was then. You know, I mean, you know, that in those days, that's like two million dollars now. Somebody walks away with it, so it was disgraceful. And what happened in the end? Did you ever get any of it back? He didn't nah, we just let him ride. With yeah. I mean, we're not cops, and we're also not collecting agencies, you know. And if there is no money, where do you get it from? He went to jail for for six months or something, and um, we couldn't even stop it. We didn't even try to stop it. I mean, the DA got a hold of this, I think, and they just went on their own and did it and prosecuted him, and he put him in jail, and he found Jesus, and he used uh, the cross as a shield. Did he, uh, did, uh, did you see him at all? Never saw him again until the day he died. Did you have to test him? Jerry went. I couldn't go. Jerry went and did something in court, but the only time I saw him was in his coffin, and I buried him. I drummed on his coffin, gave him a drummer's burial, the way he should be, but he was a dog, an absolute rotten human being, you know, and I was ashamed for him to be my father. The only thing that he did well was he was a superb drummer. And that's it. And for no other reason, you know, will I ever remember him. He's a disgrace. You guys had a had a series of managers of all kinds of Well, we were set up for it because, because of our the nature of the physical setup that we were look, explain something to, the basic thing. The Grateful Dead, when they played, Joe, we were thinking of it as church. You know, to us God was sound. That was our God. I mean, that's we would pray. We were praying. We weren't playing music. We were just a rock and roll band. That's just what it looked like. You see, it was different for us, you know? And, like, trying to make us make songs and all that stuff was really not in the order of things, in our things. And that's what... That's the reason that that Warner Brothers and the Grateful Dead had so much, so much confusion there, is that we were doing something different. And... It wasn't what anybody else was doing, nor what you perceived or anybody perceived it, yeah. it to be. We were a certain kind of an animal, and it was a great version of itself. It wasn't what it wasn't. It was what it was, and it was doing something that was linked maybe to archaic humanity. It was really deep, and it still is, and that's why the people are still around. It's not a rock and roll band. It never was. How much back then, how much of a role did the fact that there was so much hallucinogenics being used, how much did that play in the oh, music? Oh, big part it for. Yeah. It was the, it was the, it was the uh, genesis of the whole thing. Uh, it, it was able to free you of uh, your earthly, bo- the bonds that held you to the earth, you know, and you were able to fly, and you were able to, doors would open that, to realms that were not normally accessible in the normal waking state. The processes of transformation that we would go through when we would take a, uh, uh, hallucinogenics in the group would allow us to have some kind of a union in a very high, very extraordinary place. Uh, you could call it mayonnaise, you could call it uh, soul, you can call it whatever you want, but we were f- all finding this place together, and we were groping just like you were groping, you know, to find out the meaning of things, you know, how to deal with the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead was wondering how to deal with the Grateful Dead. I mean, we were in a, a total experimental position then. Remember... When we went into the studio, we had uh, an adverse, an adversarial relationship right at the beginning with the engineers who didn't want anything in the red. They were all old guys, the CBS guy, you know. And we wanted to run things in the red and do it the way we wanted to do it because our music was different than what had gone before, and we weren't interested in copying anything. We were more interested in, in going ahead and finding out who we were, what we were doing. You pray. Praying is not easy. Praying is work, hard work. 
and that's what we would do all the time. So we had to get rid of all the engineers, had to learn about the studio, and find out what the Grateful Dead was. Were you very close as, in, as personalities, too? Because there were some very diverse personalities. We all lived together. Uh, we farted together. We, uh, we, we lived together. We loved together. We did a lot of things together. We were about as close as you can get. We're closer than family. I mean, I don't know. How, some families aren't close. But talk about a close family. This is closer than that. Okay? This is closer than blood. That's how it felt, you know? I mean, it's, it's still like that. You, know? well, you got invited in after the formation. The right, after, in 67. The first record was made. Second record I worked. I was on the second. Right after the first record I joined the band. Were you in Monterey? No, right after you Monterey. Right after a month Monterey, after, I think. As I recall. And, and what was the thinking in adding more percussion in this band? Well, there really wasn't any thinking, and no one had ever planned on it. It's just that once we got on the stage uh, at the Straight Theater, and I played, we played for hours. And then all of a sudden, they all turned around. And we finished playing. I had no idea. And they just all came over and hugged me and kissed me. And they said, this is the Grateful Dead. It was the last little piece that was needed to make this new music. And that was the way it began. No one had any kind of, you know, it was a blues band when I knew the Grateful Dead. That's when it was a blues band. It played the blues. Pigpen was a hard player. It was a, just turned from being a jug band into a blues band. And then we went into outer space. Then we just cut loose. What was there? One trigger that sent you there, or was well? There... Jerry says it was when I was studying. Uh, I was studying with Alaraka, who was yeah. the uh, Indian uh, Ravi Shankar's drummer, and I was learning all these other rhythms and learning how to take the one and throw it away and play off the pulse and learning the pulse and this and that. And Jerry says that was the thing that moved us into uh, um, uh, the Grateful Dead, the, the next version of the Grateful Dead, the experimental music band. Yeah which turned into what we are now, you know. It's a, a very real evolutionary process. Uh, it's not very hard to see. Um, you played an important role in it uh, because you set yourself up as, as this, as an ad, in an adversarial position because you didn't, you really didn't recognize the Grateful Dead. And there was no reason for you to, you know, because it was so strange and it's so bizarre. And no one disliked you or Mo or Clyde or any of that. It was just, you were the straight guys, you were the record company. You'd write those notes, you know, and we'd sit and we'd grade them, and we'd put them up on the wall. You I know. see some of those notes. Oh, some, somebody should find that, you know, with paragraph and dent ink. It said, uh, Joe, wrong spelling, or no, this is a preposition, not a, a verb. And But we took it with a sense of, uh, of, a sense of humor. And we never got violent or vicious. So no, we never felt that. Ah, no, it was never like Nobody that. We just knew that. you just didn't understand, yeah. and we didn't expect you and to didn't. understand. And, and I grew up on this band. You wanted songs. The Grateful Dead was yeah. into praying. Yeah. You know, you wanted five-minute singles. Yeah. And we said, hey, look, you have a son, or you have a kid, and he's, and he's not exactly what you think he should be. You have to love him if you really want that child. If he's retarded or, or if he's extra smart or whatever it is, you have to accept him for what he is. I've accepted the Grateful Dead like that. Well, many, many of the problems were that you always surrounded yourself with people who, who were going to be the liaison with us and bridge this... Yeah. this who were just like we were. Who were just, just like you were. So, <laughs> well, we didn't know any straight so people. No, yeah. Bill Graham was the straightest person we knew. Yeah, see, when he got into it, I could understand it a little well, we more. We fired him after 20 yeah. minutes. I know. <laughs> okay, Bill, you want to be the manager? People. Okay, cool. Yeah. It lasted to 20 minutes. Yeah. Actually, 20 minutes. But Rock and Danny... And the first yeah. wave of managers... They all had the heart and soul of the Grateful Dead 
was the first thing in their minds, you know, and and they operated from that, and they weren't businessmen, you know. I mean, Danny was taking food from the back of Mayfair supermarkets to feed us, you know. I mean, we had no money, no food. We just would play, and every day we'd wake up, smoke do- uh, doobies, take psychedelics and play. And just, that was us and them. And, you know, and, and then there was the record company, uh, who was trying to sell, you know, make a commercial product out of the Grateful Dead. We were more into, which takes us into uh, our personal uh, report. When you came up to uh, the ranch and you heard the pump, you had, it was perceptive of you to uh, write to give me a contract just by hearing the pump, and uh, it turned into playing in the band or greatest yeah. story. Some you know some yeah. of our better tunes, but we were moving into other directions. So in one respect, you gave us the opportunity to expand ourselves, and me especially, I built the barn, I learned how to, I learned all about the studio from that experience, you know, the contract uh, allowed me to build it, to become at ease with it, learn about electronics, and really develop what was really inside of me, my essence, musical essence, without having to be bothered by what was going on the radio. But then when I brought you the product, the fruit, you didn't see it. I hardly saw it. I knew that it was different and it was unique and I knew that I was giving everything I got to and I knew it was the thing I had to follow as a human and I knew that it, I wasn't following anybody's drummer except my own and um, you didn't see it and but what it, what, what it did that it did was it made me realize that I had something that was unique it was different and I I remember leaving that day after everybody walked out on the playing of my second record. You know, they all left, and I was just sitting there alone in the room. The record was, the tape was still playing, and it was. I remember the ride back to the airport. There was one hand saying, "Oh my God, that's it!" You know, they don't even want to. They couldn't even listen to the whole tape. Was I was getting into noise? You know, I was getting into sound. My idea of music was expanding, and everybody wanted a pop record. And for that, you didn't take time to listen, and uh, I didn't take time to explain it. And I just kept going, I just kept, you know, developing onward. So it was okay. We were a company that, we made a record with Van Dyke Parks that we didn't understand very much either, you know, because you're out there thinking, what am I going to do with this? Yeah, I know. Because we didn't create it. That's right. There's a big difference. I'm sitting here, I picture what it's going to be, and and you don't necessarily go to the next step and say, "Well, what are we going to do with it?" He did the biggest favor. In my, he yeah. did me the biggest favor in my yeah. life at that moment. I realized later that it cut me free. It really did. It cut me loose. Instead of writing songs and writing pop music, I followed what was really in my heart. Yeah. And I've always done that ever since that moment. You know, that really made me understand that I did have something that was unique, and it, it was something that no one even saw except me. And that led me into what I'm doing now. I'm the sound, I do sound design for Twilight Zone. I do the thing for Apocalypse Now. I mean, I do movies. I mean, I have no problem getting work. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, I don't, an- I don't answer the phone now, Joe. <laughs> Tell me about, about the band itself. The, uh, what, if you had to answer and say, why 20 years later with a group of people who have no knowledge of what you were then other than some misty John, you were John Kennedy, you know, the, why are they still coming? Why can you play Madison Square Garden three nights and all these places okay. around the country? 
here's this is my opinion, and, I, and, and I'm not speaking as the Grateful Dead, okay? The Grateful Dead do a thing that is, is unique, and it's not necessarily a music thing. Do you know what a shamanic performance is? A shaman, for instance, is um, a person, a man or a woman, who uh, uses music to induce an altered state, another consciousness. People come to be healed, and he uses the drum to, as the... Uh, as his uh, instrument to take you on a journey himself and the patient, and he cures like and a he witch doctor. like a witch doctor, like it's just called a shaman. Yeah. Okay. Well, shamanic performance is a Siberian phenomenon, but it, it's used all over the world. The Grateful Dead, I believe, have some link into archaic humanity. It has some way, some feeling that it gives that allows the people who come to see it to reflect into their own self. And to, it's a healing. It's a ceremony. It's a ritual. And there's some kind of rapture that goes down when you see the Grateful Dead. It's more than music. It's music that touches you in a very unique place that allows you to enjoy, to be equal. You're not assaulted. It's a friendly place. It's a place you come to get changed, and you are changed. You're different when you leave a Grateful Dead concert. You're high. You think of something else besides the bills. Bill Graham calls it time out. Um, it's not that we are actively involved in a shamanic performance, but it takes on the characteristics of it. I've been doing some research into this, of why, just this, this question, why now, the Grateful Dead, why, if in 20 years, why do people still come in droves to it? Well, it certainly isn't just the songs. It's the vibrations. It's, it's the Sufis say, not a Brahma, which God is sound. I have always believed that. The Grateful Dead, I believe, has always believed in that. And the church that we pray to, is, is you won't find it. Uh, uh, you'll find it when the Grateful Dead strike up that note, when the Grateful Dead play, and the Grateful Dead, you know, kiss the sky. And that's, what, and that's why they keep coming back. Because it's an experience they can have nowhere else. It's totally unique to us because of the interplay that we have as a group. And how is it from the stage out when you see these crowds? How about you guys performing every night? Do you get tired of it? I mean, do you do you get yourself off? Uh, I get off. Yeah. I get off tremendously at a Grateful Dead concert. So of course, sometimes it's hard to get up because you know because of the of the the problems of the day. You know, the kids or this and that. You're thinking, but we're trained enough now. We're athletes to be able to try to let go on the stage and try to feel. Grateful Dead, don't think, feel. You know, we never were great thinkers. We could feel. And that's what the Grateful Dead is all about. It's a feeling. So we're running after this feeling just like they're running after this feeling. We're frantically running after this feeling. It's what musicians do their whole life, is run after this thing. You can't see it. You can't touch it. It's there. You can feel it. Okay? And it's, and it's that elusive feeling that we're all, we'll always be going after. We did, and we will, until we die. What do you uh, answer to, uh, there are critics who say that musically the band hasn't moved ahead very much in, in uh, is that true? If I listen to the critics, yeah. if I listen to the critics, you know, I mean, that that's ridiculous, man. That's totally ridiculous. We are so much better than we were, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, we could hardly play 20 years ago. We just had great spirit, and we put everything we had into the music. Now we can play our instruments. Hey, you know we're going to get pot shots. 20 years, you know, everybody does, you know, so what, with Count Basie now, with Duke Ellington, they lasted 20, 30, 40 years, we'll do the same thing, we're like that, we're a big band that has lasted two or three generations, it's on the third generation now. 
do you do you musically now get chances to spend a lot of time together to plan what you what you're going to do I mean, make a record or do things no like that? we what the the evolution of the Grateful Dead now is mostly first of all you can't really rehearse the Grateful Dead you can't rehearse that feeling you can rehearse songs but you can't rehearse the feeling the feeling is there the idea is to wake that feeling up do all know? the guys feel this way of course why do you think they put why do you think they're in the Grateful Dead they couldn't do this if it was for money or for glory I mean this is too hard of work <laughs> you couldn't get paid for this kind of stuff this is stuff that you really have to believe in or not believe in and it's not dogma I mean we've seen what it does to the people now if I was rapping giving you this rap and no one was showing up at the concert you'd say hey Mickey I think you better go see a doctor man because no, you're no, really no, no, whacked no. out We're, but I'm just trying to explain to the me, phenomenon it's, it's to you it's mystical to me that, that, that there are people it's not who, so mystical who, who just have no not not mystical that's that's wrong but who just have no knowledge of what you were when you started and there yeah, they, they don't are. have to and there they are they can pick it up it's like a great book yeah you can pick it up in the middle or in the end, and you can still you start reading it. Good books are like that. You can get as much out of it as if you started to read the very first page. Uh, um, the Grateful Dead had mayonnaise when I met it. When I first heard The Grateful Dead, The Grateful Dead had magic. Okay? And I knew it as soon as I heard it. And um, as long as The Grateful Dead have that spirit, and I've seen The Grateful Dead lose that magic. When was that? Well, uh, when I wasn't playing with the Grateful Dead, I heard the Grateful Dead one time, and um, I went out and I just snuck in the back door. I just wanted to hear what the Grateful Dead sounded like. I didn't even want to see anybody in the band, and I and it had lost that magic. At this one time that I had heard it, it was not there. And when the Grateful Dead was going to hang it up in '74, the Winterland concerts, on the fifth night, I just put my drums in the back of my car and I said, "I'm going to play my band down. I mean, if it's going down, I'm going to be there." I went down to uh, Winterland, set the drums up, and we played. Keith Godshaw had never played with me for two, three years. And then he came up to me afterwards. He said, I've been playing the Grateful Dead for three years, and I never heard the Grateful Dead until tonight. I said, well, man, this is just the Grateful Dead. Relax, man. He said, we can't stop now. And right on, man, let's go. So we kept going. So the Grateful Dead never hung it up. Uh, and from time to time, the Grateful Dead goes into a doldrum. You know, then it doesn't come up to its potential, and it goes through a life cycle just like anything else. It gets dull, and then it gets exciting again, and it goes through the cycles of death, life, I mean, rebirth. You're born, you die, and in death, there's birth, and the Grateful Dead is dying all the time musically, and that's why I know that it's vital, and it's and it comes up to it comes up to the standards of the Grateful Dead. Getting back in history after Shoot. after the initial records of, uh, of of praying to sound and long jams and not doing songs, mm -hmm. what triggered uh, Working Man's? Well, it was these were just some easy songs. You know, some were just they were just basically basically acoustic songs, and they weren't really elaborate. And I think we were in a, in a bind yes, so as far as uh, uh, money. I'm trying to figure, was it more the bind that forced you to do it? Or no, I think it was a natural progression. We wanted just to do this. Because I didn't think we you guys into... would have done anything no, of course that not. you were not going to be you... proud of. Up. Oh, you must better believe it, especially if you said to do it, we wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? Sure. That was the first thing. No, it had to come from you guys. It had to come. If you said it, then for sure we wouldn't sure. do it. Yeah. Yeah. 
But uh, and it, look, it could have been anybody, Joe. Nothing. You understand it? I understand nothing that. Personal. I yeah. understand that. You just set yourself up. It's like being the manager of the Grateful Dead. It's Palookaville. Somebody had to be there, and I was the guy that was yeah. there. We were you were great at it. It was me. You were. You were like. Than, than somebody else. I mean, you I mean, were, never bothered you. No, you, you, were, you made your records. You were great at it. Yeah. No, I mean, if, if, if you wanted to have an adversary, yeah. you, you would. You're the, yeah. You would have been my pick. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was cool. Were you Were you amazed at the commercial acceptance of, of these records? Mm, no, you, no. You really. No, everything no. seemed to be very normal and actual. Yeah. The Grateful Dead world. No kidding. Yeah, nothing seemed strange. Yeah. It was just. Look, we always thought of this as a long-term thing. I mean, a long-term thing. Even then, I thought it would never end. No kidding. Yeah, I still uh, think it never will end. Well, you, you may be right. I mean, you're more right than wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I might be wrong, but I still have the, the feeling. Did the guys all feel that this was a long-term? Because we wouldn't have done this. Answers. We let everything go, Joe. I mean, everything. We cut every every bit of reality loose, and we just formed our own world, our Grateful Dead world. And that was enough to sustain us. And it was more than enough. It nourished us. Not only did it sustain us, we grew. Because what we were being told from the outside world just didn't fit what we were. We knew we weren't a, a top 40 band. And we never really tried to be it. We just tried to be a great version of what we were. The Grateful Dead. And just so happens, the people kept coming. And we never had to depend, and actually he did us a favor, because we never depended on records. See, because if we would have depended on records, once you don't have a hit record, you're gone. We were a live performing band, we always knew that was the animal. We could never get it in the studio. We tried, we tried everything. Produce, remember Hassinger? Sure. Hassinger went away for five years, we drove him nuts. I know, you, you broke him. Yeah, man, we didn't do that on purpose. Meeting at the house. Yeah. He said, we don't want it. we want him out, and he was sitting there. Yeah. He was, been all around the country. And we, I remember when we were, got up on the console yeah. and told after an anthem after we spent 120000 we yeah. didn't have a basic, and we said, well, we have to re-record this in heavy air or light air. Yeah, that was it. That, yeah, that was it. That's one of my great stories. Yeah, well, uh, you remember... foggy day. Yeah, yeah, you remember that. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Okay, so that was it, and then just started doing that with yeah. his little cigarette. Remember the yeah. cigarillos? Yeah, and, sure, sure. and his uh, yeah. the little sweaters he used to wear? <laughs> <laughs> And, oh, poor Hassinger. Hassinger wasn't a bad guy. Well, he was, bad guy at all. He, he just didn't see the Grateful Dead. No. That's all. You know, and that's something you can't crucify a person for. You yeah. just, you say, gee, well, what would have happened if all you guys really saw the Grateful Dead and got behind it? You know, we might not even be here. That's right. We might have turned into a top 40 group, say, got real what? successful and died what a miserable been, death what would have been on the charts. What would have success and done to you Kill the Grateful it Dead. Killed you. Yeah. So it's cool, man. Everything is right. Yeah. It is right. Yeah. I mean, if we were a success, we wouldn't even be sitting here, man. I swear to you, that's one of the questions. I always hope. I always, I always hope we would never. Deep in my heart, yeah. I mean, I know some some of the guys might might not feel like this, but I always thought that if we ever got a hit, it would have been the end of the Grateful Dead because we would have been we wouldn't be lean and we yeah, and hungry like, like we are and now. The Grateful Dead is like a shark, man. It, oh, it's it's a, like an animal. The only thing it's interested in doing is making music. Like a shark only eats all day. The Grateful Dead really only wants to do one thing. Do that, make the be the Grateful Dead, and that is not necessarily making top forty singles. That would have been our destruction, the end. And so, in many ways, you know, this is a this was great fortune as I looked at it. Now I haven't talked to everybody. No, no, no. I didn't to talk to Jerry and to yeah. This is this is the way uh, I'm trying to get Phil down here. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the the turmoil in the in the 
business side of your, your career. <laughs> this is like therapy to me. I mean, really, I like to see the way he sees it, too. Yeah, with these, with these managers, uh, did, did the band ever stop and say, well, Jesus, is this being handled right or anything like that? Or, or, or was playing all playing. the care? No, we were musicians. We were artists. And so these other... The we just... Nobody else know. would do it, so anybody who wanted to do it could do it. And you never got rid of anybody. It no, like because they were all part of us. They all we all suffered together. I mean, we all struggled together at the beginning. You know, it was like, what are you going to say to Rock Scully? He was my friend. He was my first friend I had in San Francisco. What do you say to Danny Rifkin? I mean, he helped feed me. You know, I mean, and the band. What do you say to the Bear? You know, to Owsley. You know, and all those people. I mean, they were there when it all happened. Well, as it's gone through the years, it's all been all. All the people who are really the Grateful Dead now are with the Grateful Dead. The motives have been siphoned out, and all of the periphery is gone because of economics, because of time. You know, it's just taken its toll. You know, and people have warped out on drugs. You know, we've lost a lot of people because of drug abuse. And uh, the Grateful Dead always went on because we played the music, and that's the, why we were able to get through it somehow because the other people weren't playing the music they were making the deals or they were trying yeah. they, what they really had in their heart was the good of the Grateful Dead they tried to make sure that the Grateful Dead would be ongoing because we were running into walls every other day we would make a t terrible decision you know business wise and we would just be beating our heads into the wall we just wanted to have enough space to play our music we didn't care what as long as we had some pot and some space to play our music, you can do whatever you want. We didn't care about the royalties. We would hope that they would come in someday, but believe me, we never talked about it. No kidding. Never. Never. No, it had no... It, gee, you know, I mean, we had to make a record because we signed a contract and you gave us $100,000, okay? We knew that. We always were in debt to you. You know, not until recently, maybe in the last few years that we have, or maybe six, eight, ten, whatever, a few years. You know, that could be 15 years. Uh, like, the new guy in this band is... She's been in the band seven years. He's still a new guy. Yeah. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you know? He's playing. Somebody else comes along. I still I can't remember his name. What was the, the music scene in San Francisco back then? Yes. In the 60s. Did the other bands understand you guys? Uh, they loved the Grateful Dead because of its spirit, its wildness. Yeah. You know, we didn't give a shit. How about know? musically? Oh, yeah. They respected They wouldn't follow us. You know, the Grateful Dead, when we played, was it was like holy music. It really was. We were pulling from a place that no one had, had access to. Because, remember, we were the ones that were loosest. We would all take psychedelics together. I mean, and there's something to that. that, And we would learn to play on it. You know, we, didn't, we never took psychedelics and went out in the street and took our clothes off and went, ha-ha, yaha. We never went to the forest and just took it to get high. Whenever we got high, we played. And, and we used it high. as a... We learned to play high. We, stopped, we would stop playing in the middle of songs in the old days and then reform the music and then it would go from one thing. That's how the music got its form, you know, because we... Things would break up, and then we would reform it. And then things wouldn't fit together the way they normally did. And we said, okay, it's not the way it's... This is not the Grateful... This is the Grateful Dead. It's not the way we learned or we hear on the radio. It's okay. And once we were to surrender that feeling, then the Grateful Dead formed. And these long shows, these long... It takes a long time to find out who you are. Yeah. And... We takes a long time to warm up. It takes a long time for your spirits to come together to make this other music. What about the physical demands? Of well, look at me. Yeah, well, you're, you're terrific. I mean, I'm an athlete. I work out to be in the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead is uh, is important enough for me to not get lazy. Phil, he works out. I mean, he's got a little bit of a stomach, but it takes a lot of intensity up here to play Grateful Dead music as well as intensity here. Even Garcia, in his, uh, in his uh, condition... 
was still always able to get up on the stage and play Grateful Dead style music. And I mean, when I play with other bands, I don't necessarily play like the Grateful Dead. When I play little side bands or something, you can't play like that with everybody. Everybody can't play together like that. Like, I don't fit in so well in other bands. Now, Jerry, I can't imagine Jerry fitting in with another band with Phil Esch. When the Grateful Dead stops, he'll lay his bass up. Were any one, two, three of you guys who led the charge to get further out in music? Was there any, in, from the musical standpoint, was it uh, always a community effort or did, did somebody lead the way? Was, you know, like. From different times, different people led. Is that right? And the Grateful Dead was gracious enough to give everybody a time to lead. And if it was one person's destiny, we would turn out to be not like this. If it was Phil Lesh or Jerry, it wouldn't nearly be as far out as this. You know, look you at Bobby. Be... Look at Bobby, the little Bobby, like the kid. Yeah. Bobby gets up there, runs up on speaker columns. You know, yeah. he's manifests himself. He's little Bobby Weir. That guy used to stand yeah. in the back of the bus yeah. and, and twiddle on his guitar. And now he's up there, strong man, and playing right in the front of the band, leading the band on. You know. Well, you were less conservative than the others musically then. That, Who was? You, when you say that uh, if Phil or, or Jerry were playing, it wouldn't nearly be as far out. No, if it was just their yeah. idea of how the Grateful Dead should be. I see. I see. Yeah. No, it, the Grateful. When you bring a song to the Grateful Dead, whether I bring it or Jerry brings it, he brings it. He has the chord changes. Here's the way I like it to go, and then we be, make it the Grateful Dead. We change the song and we make it into the Grateful Dead song, not a Jerry Hunter song. It's a Grateful Dead song. You see, it gets Grateful Deadized. Yeah. Whatever comes in, you throw it into the pot. Be prepared, because it will change. It will be ours, not yours, but ours. And that's always been like that, as long as I can remember from the very. For everything we've ever done, we've always taken that liberty. And the Grateful Dead has given the Grateful Dead that liberty to take the songs and mold it into something different. Back to history. Do you remember the specifics in New Orleans of the, the famous incident? Uh, what about? How it happened, uh, how you recall it, what, what were the circumstances? Well, uh... Me and Billy were across the street on uh, Bourbon Street. Oh, this, the airplane had been there, and it told us that something. Uh, something there was a, a warning: don't go to New Orleans. They're going to pop you. And oh, Gar, uh, Gar, Garrison, uh, Jim Garrison. Yeah, Jim Garrison was the DA. Okay, and he that. wanted to do. He was on. He wanted to do something. Okay, and he wanted to make a name. Didn't he? Wasn't he doing the Kennedy well, thing? I, I, I told uh, McNally. The Mc uh, you feel set up all the way? Oh, we were set up. Yeah. Totally set up. They knew we were coming. Bill and I were across the street at a strip joint. Here's, the, here's Kreutzmann. It's near Kreutzmann. So we had a couple of beers, and uh, we walked across the hotel, and we were singing songs and holding on to each other, and all of a sudden Kreutzmann said, there are cops are everywhere. There's plain clothesmen all around. I said, oh, come on, Billy. You know, <laughs> there's no cops here. And he just, we just kept going. We walked back into the hotel, walked up there, and there's Bobby Weir sitting in it with a tray with a, a, drawer, a drawer full of pot cleaning it, you know, in the room. And there was all these people from all around. Bobby doesn't even smoke. Bobby did nothing, you know. Bobby was the innocent one. So we get in there, and Bobby sits down, and all of a sudden, we close the door, and knock, knock, knock. FBI, open up! I said, no! <laughs> and so they broke the door down, they threw me in, the door knocked me into the closet. And so they all run in with their, in, with their weapons drawn, and I run out the door, and I run down the hallway, and of course there's a couple of them there, and they just bring me back in the room, and uh, they handcuffed us all, and um, took us to prison, to parish prison, we spent all night there. And uh, it was set up. It was set up by some some girl who, who knows? We never really found out how it really went down. And then 
me and Ramrod and Jackson and Owsley were charged with a misdemeanor. And uh, finally we got it down to half a misdemeanor, and then the case was dropped. And that's all really went down. And what about the rest of the guys? Oh, they got let off. I mean, for some reason. I can't, you know, it was, you know, for what, you know, for one reason or another. It really, it was just... Well, we did trucking, man. We got a great yeah, song know, out of that. Of course, a terrific song. It was one, that's why I say prison is great. Like Crosby, he's going to come out of prison now and write the best songs of his life and sing his ass off. Prison is great to write it. You know? And uh, so that's, that, was, that was New Orleans. Actually, uh, it brought us more together than ever, you know? We, we were, of course, this was the second time we were busted. You know, it was first one was the, H, the first Rolling Stone issue, you know, Grateful Dead busted on hate speech. That's right. And after this, our price went up like thousands of dollars in New Orleans. We became world famous after the bust. They did nothing but help us. At what point, Ricky, did drugs cease to be an important factor in the, in the music, or re really in the, in the band? Did, did something happen? Or Well, it was hard to go on the road. Once we started going on the road and taking psychedelics and coming back to a hotel room, you know, it was no way... And, and it got old after a while, you know, the same thing would happen, you know, and once you know about psychedelics, once you know about how it works and what it does, there's really no reason to keep taking it every night. And it was becoming a crutch. And it was becoming uncomfortable because coming down from it was really hard in a room. And I was never really into coke or heroin or any of that, any hard drugs, none of us were ever really into that kind of, you know, that was not productive, that was not musical, so we never really used it. We only used... The drugs that we thought were that enhanced the music. So there was a time when it became it became uncomfortable for me, you know, and getting hit on when the fans started recognize who you were because you didn't want to talk. You just want to do it, you know, and be within your own self, go into your in, into the inner self, and um, it was just discarded slowly over the years and of course remember LSD became illegal yes of course yeah, that, remember there was that too I mean when we first were doing it it wasn't illegal I mean you know you'd get it at the door when you paid your 75 cents you'd get a tab you know and everybody who walked in you know had the option of getting high or not it didn't cost any hardly anything you know it was just pretty free what, what kind of recollections do you have of some of the, the places you played, like uh, Monterey Pop Festival? I wasn't at Monterey. Oh, that's right. No, Woodstock. Woodstock. Woodstock was one of the most horrible days, musical days of my life, because this, it was rain, started to rain. One half of the PA went off. Everybody was getting shocks on the stage. We had to wait around. I think we played in the middle of the night or in the morning or something, and... And it was such a big scene. There was so much attention brought on it that the Grateful Dead never really functioned under that kind of stress. It never could, we never could relax under that kind of stress. It was like our own party, you know, free in the park. Yeah. It was like this was a great, you know, like a reward for us. You know, here are all these people. Now we had 400,000 free in the park, you know. And this is sort of what we started years ago. But it didn't work out like that. And then there was bad acid around there, and everybody got into it. They would, by the time we got on, everybody had done everything they could possibly do. And, um, and it wasn't as fun. You know, it, it wasn't as fun like the movie had it or like people thought about it. Did it you was, make the movie? No, we didn't want our stuff put in the movie. We said, no, forget it. We wouldn't want to be part of that. You weren't on the record either. No, we didn't want to be part of that either. We played terrible. It was awful. And my recollections were all these people, you know, scuffling in, you know, and enjoying something that we already had enjoyed. You know, it was sort of the end of, you know, I said, this is out of hand, totally out of hand. You couldn't enjoy music on, under those circumstances. It was too much of a, of a scene. What are your recollections, even though you never really got on to play at Altamont, do you, but you were there? At where? Altamont? Altamont? Yeah. 
That was hell yeah. on earth. Yeah. That was living hell. Earth, you know, you like, better believe I can describe it. Yeah. Hell's angels got there real early. Were they your idea? No. They, well, there is still speculation on, on how this really came about. We were we were planning just to the hell's angel to have give him five hundred dollars in beer and put him on you know let him have the side of a mountain or something over there and enjoy. Somehow they wound up as security guards on the stage surrounding the stage. The older guys didn't get there early in the morning, so the younger guys got there, and they started taking reds and all kinds of stuff, and it got really got out of hand. So by the time the older guys got there, they really couldn't control it. It was out of hand. The stage was on, was moved at the very last day. You know, I mean, we were moving the stage because the, we couldn't do it at Sears Point, you know, and we couldn't do it here, and they were moving us. And the stones broke the news before. We wanted just to announce it on the day. So we have like 30, 40, 50,000 people. Actually, it was a private party. We were, we were trying to, it was like for the stones to, you know, to sort of pay back San Francisco and everything for all the money they took out, of, uh, you know, out. And it was going to be like a little party. We actually planned it at my house at the barn. It was all the planning went down. And all of a sudden the stones guys came in and they took, took it to San Francisco and they announced it on the radio and everything got way out of proportion and so things tra changed drastically you know with the, with the Stones machine Sam Cutler and the machine came in um, and then the day of the concert when I got there Marty Ballin had just gotten popped and got hit in the mouth because of something he said to a Hell's Angel and he just knocked him out and he got up and he said, fuck you, and then he got hit again. And things started getting out of hand. And I remember being on the stage with Lesh on the back when the Stones were playing. And I saw this guy coming across the crowd uh, with his gun. And he was just running on the top of... Well, you saw the movie. And I thought it was pretty brave what this Hell's Angel did. I mean, I remember the angels parting. A lot of them just moved away. And this one guy just ran off the stage. An angel went into the crowd and just did this guy in. And this guy was coming right at me and Phil. And Jagger was in front of us, maybe like six or eight feet on the stage. And this angel just took him down. You know, he just stabbed him in the back, just took him down. This guy was had a big gun. You can see him running across, you know. And this, I mean, it was self-defense, actually. Uh, that's the way I looked at it. And... Jagger went on there, and he was in all of his glory, you know. He was Tiffany for the devil, you know. There it was, and I I thought it was the uh, what a day in hell would look like, a normal day in hell. I mean, it was horrible. People getting beat up, angels going crazy. Even some of the friends I, you know, that I knew were just completely out of character, you know, just going nuts. There was no, nothing to control anybody, and it was just way too far gone. And the stones delayed their appearance like by an hour or two until it got dark. Jagger wanted to go yes, on. And that's where it really heated up. So we invited them all to play. We never even got a chance to play. So we, me and Jerry were in, the, in a bus in the back there saying, well, what should we do, man? Should we play? We can't play now. We can, can we, should we cool the scene out? No, we can't do it. There's nothing to say now. I mean, this has just gone way out of control. You knew that somebody was killed. Oh, yeah. We knew. We said, wow, this is way out. We just got to cool it and tell him to go home. You know, and the Stones. I mean, if Jagger didn't stay, didn't, didn't hold it up for him to become Mitt Jagger of the Rolling Stones, you know, and just played right after whoever the last one was, the start airplane or whomever, it might not have gotten out of hand. And I, I think that... The, that time when he waited two hours there, just the crowd was steaming, it was restless, people were getting beat up in the crowds. I don't know. That was really an unfortunate decision on his part. 
What was the relationship, and how did it start with, between the Hells Angels and the Grateful Dead, if there was ever a relationship? Well, the only relation I really know is the, the Hells Angels used to uh, hang around us in, in the old days, and when we would play free in the park, they would sort of guard the, um, the uh, electricity. You know, they would stay on yeah. the, uh, the AC lines and we wouldn't get pulled. You know, because we didn't play with no permits, and we always were under the... Uh, we lived with the fear of getting unplugged, always, because we would play too long without permits or whatever. So the Angels was sort of like a, a security force to not... so the law would, would not pull the plug. And that's the way I always thought of the Hells Angels, and they... we had... Uh, some of the Hells Angels were personal friends of mine, not because they were Hells Angels, just because they were fine people. You know, some, they're good and bad and every... Has that relationship continued, or did it end... Uh... I still have friends that are Hell's Angels. But do they still hang around? No, now it's different, because they have another situation on their hands. They have been severely injured, you know, because of their involvement with the law. Yeah. And they have been broken, you know, they have their ranks have been uh, infiltrated. Yeah. And uh, we don't travel the same road. Yeah. There are certain parallels between the Grateful Dead and the Hell's Angel. Because we want our own life and we determine our own fate but uh, uh, that's about all I mean we're not into what they're into and they're not into what we're into they're a motorcycle club we're a rock and roll band we both lived in the same proximity we were both on the street we were both in San Francisco it was, a lo it was logical that we would have certain things in common and they loved music they were turning on to psychedelics there was the Keezy Keezy you know and those guys in La Honda I think that's where it started with Keezy and the Angels in La Honda and uh they got to be friends. They got to hang around. They were part of the San Francisco scene. That's it. As we had no, no. We weren't doing business. You know? no, no, yeah. no. As the band matured as as individuals, when people got married or had families, was was it hard to keep the dedication to the Grateful Dead uh, together to hold that steady? No, it was so strong that yeah, the Grateful Dead's uh, dedication to the Grateful Dead is so strong that. And the families realize that they know that they know the grateful, the you know, the power of the Grateful Dead on the Grateful Dead. So they never fight it; they join it. Is there? A, Everybody loves the Grateful Dead. In the are grateful there some Dead. grown up kids now? Or? Oh yeah, a lot of grown up kids, and they're playing drums and guitars, yeah. and uh, they've grown up on the risers on the stage. You know, uh, under the you know, it's a clean way. Of, it's a clean life. The way it's a it's a good life to grow up with. You know, growing up around music. Do they uh, understand the mystique of the band, or are they like kids whose fathers play for the San Francisco 49ers and don't think Both. much about it? Yeah. Both. I think, yeah. that they, I think that they understand the Grateful Dead is special because they like it. Yeah. No one forces them to be on the stage. A lot of them stay back and play in the kids' room. We have kids' rooms now when we play. You know, We have a place just for yeah. the children and with supervision. So when we're playing out there and so forth, we know they're not running around wild. They're back there with wavy gravy, you know, doing, make, being clowns and playing games and... Um, they know that it's special. They hear other people talk about the Grateful Dead, and they. It's not like um, sometimes some kind of concentration camp, you know. Yeah. You have to love the Grateful Dead. If you don't, that's cool too. Uh, most of them are uh, respect the Grateful Dead, and they'll do. They see our respect for the Grateful Dead, and it has reflected on them, I believe, and they've also. It does that to them, too. I mean, it's not, they're not immune to this feeling. You know, not at all, as I perceive it. How active a band are you now? How many dates a year? We do about 80, I think. Yeah. I think around 80 dates. And in between, what happens? Everybody's on their own project. They yeah. have been for a number of years, That's right. too, haven't they? Yeah. That's right. 
Have any, has anybody been extraordinarily successful with, a, with an individual project? Well, I don't know what you mean by successful. Uh, we sold a lot of records or... Yeah, demands, well, in, in, so. in, in, in a matter of speaking, I yeah. think that um, everybody has been successful in a matter of speaking. No one, is, no one has uh, uh, had the time to devote to be successful like the Grateful Dead. It's, this is like what you do in your off time to feed the Grateful Dead, as I look at it. It makes me more hungry to go back to the Grateful Dead. It also prepares me for, in growth. It gives me growth, so I can bring this back to the Grateful Dead. Um, my records, my percussion records, have been, have been very successful for, for, for percussion records, audiophile records. It's the largest selling percussion record. Um, uh, movie scores, uh, I've done Apocalypse Now. Uh, I do The Twilight Zone. Bobby does Kingfish. Kreisman has his band. Um, Phil is writing symphonic scores. Um, People are, are following the things that they want to do, and the Grateful Dead is offers that allows that to happen. How it's much? not so ingrown. So you can't do anything. And the Grateful Dead encourages us to do things outside the Grateful Dead. Jerry does his yeah. Garcia band. Sure. It's not like the Grateful Dead. No. Nothing is like the Grateful Dead, Joe. How much more organized in the uh, in the day to day right? life in the business are you now? Uh, is it now an ongoing business that operates? Believe it or not, the Grateful Dead, we meet as the board of directors every week. We have a board of directors meeting. Don't let this get out, Joe. <laughs> we have a board of directors meeting. We have general meetings every two weeks where everybody, secretaries, everybody, we meet once every two weeks, and then the board meets once a week, and all the information is brought in front of the board, and then we make our decision. Okay, we have attorneys, we have CHP, you know, what are CHPs? CHPs, CHPs right? CHPs. Uh, <laughs> we have some chips that, that do our accounting for us. Um, and it's a corporation, a legal California corporation, wow. believe it or not. Wow. And um, we mind the rules, and we operate within the system. We don't let the system push us around. We don't let it determine what we do. We still would like to determine our own destiny. And uh, that's it. Seemed like that it was always the way, and now it's just that way. Oh, we all. I mean, if you could not survive the way we were in 1967. Well, now, of course not. Of course not. Yes. No one could. You couldn't. No, you changed. Well, if you don't change, you die. Yeah. I mean, you you cease to exist. Now you had said uh, up front here about the experience of attending a concert, and you know how crowd just walks out of there. Is there anything that you capsulize that makes this live appeal that, uh, that of live shows more so than, than other people? It's not that you jump around stage a lot. And it's, not it's where the music comes from, Joe. It's, yeah, it's where it comes from. It's not, it's not how loud it is. Yeah. It's not how good it is. Forget about good. Yeah. Forget about trendy. Forget about in time. Forget about trends. Is about all that. Much it's got. It's the essence of where the music comes from. It's what drives the person to make the music. It's why. That's why we've outlasted all of those bands, especially the San Francisco bands. You know, that thought they'd go on forever. We came from a different place. Our foundation was. We were founded on something much different than all the other bands, obviously, because we were able to withstand all the pressures that they did and more to get here. We love each other so fucking much that money won't break us up, ever. We'll laugh in the face of that. Uh, time won't break us up. The only thing that could break us up is, is, uh, is, the, is the Reaper. Yeah. 
you know, and which breaks anything up. And that's the end. When you die, when you leave this planet, it will break the Grateful Dead as you know it as a musical organization. But it will live on. The Grateful Dead will live on in the memory. And, uh, dare I say, on tape, records and tapes. Is there a point in all these years that you look back on most fondly, a year or two years or a time when you say, boy, that was the best uh, mm -hmm. you lived? What was that? The best, the best time, I mean, for me was... Yeah. When we first broke out of San Francisco, I guess it was like right after Anthem of the Sun, when we had all these new things in 11 and 17 and 5 and 10 and all these different time signatures, and we were experimenting with that new music. And I remember when we went to the Midwest, and I remember the faces and how they would look with their eyes open and their mouths open, and they would look back and forth across the whole band because this music was so new and loud and so outrageous. You know, and I saw the looks on their faces, and that was one of those, was we were all mixed up and confused in the music, and we weren't thinking, we were feeling, and that was the best time for me, was when we were experimenting with all this new stuff, and every day we would fall on something we didn't know, and we would learn something, every day. It's not like that anymore, but... That was the most exciting time. It wasn't playing in front of a lot of people. It was, it was when we were falling on the things that we know now for the first time. And we've taken a lot of that stuff with us. And a lot of it we've filtered out and is not part of our repertoire because it was just a miss. We hit and miss. So it was the excitement sure, of hitting trying. them. Yeah, we were trying sure, really hard with everything, every everything we had, you know, to make this Grateful Dead music, whatever the fuck it was. Is yeah. it now for, more formula? Yes, uh, it's, it's more, more formula. You know what works oh. and you've eliminated We know a lot of what and works. And reach out too much. No, we don't experiment as much as we used to, uh, except we have a part of our show. Uh, we take like 20, 30 minutes. We call it space, where anything goes. Any tonality, any kind of instrument, any noise, any sound. Remember... The guitar, Jerry could hardly play guitar. Man, he was only playing guitar a couple of years. I mean, he was banjo player, and then we were, he was to play the jug. He was, he was a jug bander, you know? So, I mean, they were young on their instruments, and I hadn't played, you know, rock and roll much, and Kreutzmann was the only one who really knew rock and roll, and Pigpen was the best musician in the, in the band, and played in harmonica. He was the only real singer, remember? Yeah, I remember. Okay, oh, so really? it, was, it was the whole... And then when Pig died... Yeah. And or left started his influence started leaving the band. We had a change, you know. We couldn't. We weren't. When Pig wasn't singing the blues, the Grateful Dead went to where the Grateful Dead was more comfortable at space. See, we were always trying to pull this pig into space. Sure. Pigs in space. <laughs> and Pig was always glued to the earth. We were. We were. We were. We were, we were exploring galaxies, and the pig was uh, was uh, plowing the earth. Okay, rightfully so, and he did it really well. He was kind of stoic. I mean, he would go along. Yeah, and he would go, and he would just sit and laugh at us and not understand it, look at us and blink his eyes on this crazy stuff that was going on behind him. But uh, he loved the Grateful Dead. So in the passing of Pigpen, when it became uh, less of Pigpen influence, the Grateful Dead would, was, would metamorphize, and it turned into this other creature that you see now. Yeah. And, uh, and then Bob came out. And then, you know, all, all the things that you know. What will, what will it take now on stage? You, you're getting off all the time, but there are times, obviously, you're sore. Mm -hmm. What will it take? That, that somebody just is really playing incredibly or something like that? Hey, hey Len. <laughs> what else would you do here? <laughs> right. Uh, what, what, will it, 
What does it? Uh, did you ever analyze it? You know, there's going to be a night, maybe you're going to play three nights in, in New York, and there's going to be one night when it. What will it be that somebody is playing? No. What happens is that you are you are a product of what you bring. To, the Grateful Dead is a product of what is brought to the stage. If everybody prepares themselves well, like you can't good carry yourself physically, you don't come to the stage with a lot of problems, you are ready to play, and everybody is in that state, and they get to the stage, we can look forward to the Grateful Dead. Now, if somebody's done something they shouldn't before the, the show, or they're not into it, and their energy level is not up, well, it's going to take a little longer, perhaps, to get to that place. So you can look forward to us doing that thing, being the Grateful Dead, when everybody is hungry, and everybody puts themselves in the right place and is prepared to play Grateful Dead music because it's not a casual thing. It's something that you have to work at now. Because remember, we were doing this every day in the old days. We don't do that anymore. So the chances of our hitting those highs are lessened because we're not in shape. It's like an athlete not working out every day. We just don't work out every day. Are there times when you decide you're going to get up for something that it really means a lot to you and you're going to do that? Those times never work like that. No, you know, you can't, you can't, the Grateful Dead can't yeah. uh, so whip the Grateful yeah. Dead. Yeah. You know, we can't say to the Grateful Dead, you're going to do it today, Grateful Dead. Yeah. You know, this is a big chance. For, every time yeah. we do that, we fall right on our faces. <laughs> you know, so we've learned over the years that the Grateful Dead doesn't respond to that that kind of intimidation, if you would. You know what I mean? It responds to... You have to look into each yourself and know that if I get up there and I'm prepared and I work hard to be a good version of the Grateful Dead, the chances of us doing that thing are, hype, are heightened. Sure. And uh, I think everybody in the Grateful Dead by now know this. I mean, imagine, we've been practicing for 20 fucking years. You know, I mean, if you give us another few years, we'll really be good. I don't think this is the end, you know. The Grateful Dead is... Why? Why should it be? Why should it be? Well, it's just longevity, just years, that's why. The only thing that could happen is for you uh, to get tired of it, but you obviously haven't. You passed the, the tired point. Or, like a Rolling Stones thing that... Something festers, and all of a sudden there's a blow-up between two guys, and that'll be the end of that. No, this won't be like that. The Grateful Dead won't end like that. What do you say? You won't end Grateful like Dead that. will not, I can promise you, the Grateful Dead will not end over something as petty as yeah. anything that's earthbound. Yeah. It won't. Nothing can destroy us like that. It has to be from another place, like someone being taken from us. You know, it's, this is rare, man. We got something that we know is very rare. And, you know, Joe, it looks like, up there, it's like... It's like this, man. It's as strong. It's as strong as a giant animal, you know. Like, couldn't you think of? Well, you couldn't think of killing a dinosaur. A dinosaur would ever die, but actually, they were just as fragile as eggs. You know, it's the cloud came over and the dinosaurs died. Right? That's the Grateful Dead. I mean, if if we're taken, it's not going to be by a spear. You know, it's not going to be by anything that a man throws at us or anybody, by a record company or by a, 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 a or by. A, that's the one thing we never would let the record company determine our fate. As soon as we did, we would be done. It would be Palookaville. We knew it. It would be great if we made millions of selling records. Oh, that might have been great. We might not have been here, as we spoke of before. And I think everybody knew that a lean, a hungry, grateful dead was the way we would always want it. And believe it or not, even in this day when we go out and we make millions of dollars on tours... Nobody is really fat in the Grateful Dead, Joe. I mean, our men get paid well. We have an enormous overhead. Um, 
and we have a pension plan. We have medical thing. We've set everybody, you know, we've tried to make this into an ongoing, a long-term thing, profit sharing. All kinds of stuff goes down in the Grateful Dead that's uh, ongoing and long-term. We have a foundation that we fund. Uh, we fund all kinds of old people's thing, crazy people's thing, young people, uh, different priorities, Indian things. We have, we pour millions of dollars out into other things, you know. So we are a viable part of the community. And the Grateful Dead is the spirit in which we all live, not only on stage as the Grateful Dead, but off stage. It's the only way to go. I mean, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I wouldn't want it any other way. Terrific.